All right, welcome back to the room, everybody. Uh, If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. And we're looking at verses 11 through 22. I've divided uh, chapter 9 into three sections. We talked about 1 through 10 last week. This week will be 11 through 22. And then we'll finish next week of chapter 9 with 23 through 28. It's just a meaty section. And I want to make sure that we understand it. I want to make sure that we walk away with the right understanding of this passage. There are some passages that are are really clear. And they summarize what the uh, writer is trying to say really well. And and Hebrews 9 is one of those. And so I'd like for us to spend uh, some some time here. Uh, So last week we talked about the regulations of the Old Covenant. You couldn't just go into God's presence any way you wanted to. There were so many examples in the Old Covenant about how people would go in uh, under their own uh, false ideas and under their own false uh, ways, and they would come in and there would be some sort of a punishment for that. And so um, last week he talked about that even under the Old Covenant there were regulations for worship, and in the same way there were regulations under the New Covenant, that there is only one prescribed way into the presence of God, and that's through the person of Jesus Christ. And so in that passage... Um, we, we had to um, experience God's presence in the means in which that He prescribed, right? Uh, you start to think about um, Isaiah, who when he was in the presence of God, uh, he experienced this moment where he said what? He said, woe is me, right? I'm a man, an undone man. I'm a man of unclean lips. Uh, and he fell in the presence of God as though he were a dead person. You think about Moses who was hidden in the cleft of the rock because God had to shield him from his presence and from his glory. He couldn't see God without dying. You think about Peter, James, and John when they went up on the Mount of Transfiguration. How once they were up on the mountain with Jesus and his clothes were transformed and they saw Elijah and they saw Moses. They saw the presence. They heard the voice of God and everything was this kind of white purified presence and Peter, James, and John fell and they were just in awe of this presence of God. For some reason, we had this notion that we could stand in God's presence on our own. And there's just not a human who can do that. It would be easier for you to stare into the sun than it would be for you to stare into the glory of God and to be in His presence uncovered. And so with those regulations and restrictions, because God is holy and because we're sinful, we don't just have access. We can't just go in without Jesus Christ and without His blood that covers us. That was last week. It's online. I encourage you to, to, uh, to listen to that if you have time, if you haven't heard it yet. This week, he's comparing uh, Jesus as the great high priest and the one who inaugurates this new covenant in His blood. And so as I read the text, uh, verses 11 through 22, I want to start with 22. And then I'm going to go back to 11 and read the rest of the text. And as we do that, I want you to count the number of times you hear the word blood. Starting in verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's where we're going to end up. Okay, So let's start at verse 11 and work our way down there so that we can understand why blood is important for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 11. 
But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people... He took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. All right, how many times did you count? I just counted 12. I think I said verse 22 twice. Uh, I counted 11. Anybody else count 11? Minus verse 22? All right, a few of you. How many of you counted 12? Uh, Because I said it twice in verse 22. Uh, We're going to get to that. I want us to understand. And I want you to get to the point where you feel like you have a good understanding of why we sing about blood. Why we talk about blood. Why blood is important. All right? Uh, Don't count how many times I say that this morning. All right? It might get on your nerves a little bit, but we want to understand this important tenet of Christianity. It's used 11 times, and he talks about it in a a number of ways with um, goats and calves, uh, goats and bulls. He talks about purification, sanctification, and all these things are tied uniquely to blood. Uh, There are a couple of other facets of this passage that I want to point out before we get to that. Um, He talks about in verse 12, an eternal redemption. And in verse 15, those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now, everything in the old covenant was temporary, right? They had to sacrifice daily. They had to sacrifice um, um, regularly. They had to make offerings of various kinds and in various ways with uh, with um, drink offerings, with grain offerings, with um, goat offerings, with sacrificial offerings. Um, then the the uh, high priest would go in once a year and he would make atonement uh, for his own sins and also for the unknown sins of the people. That took place once a year, but there was a continual sacrifice. There were continual sacrifices. And last week we read that it just wasn't able to purify the conscience. It was temporary. Uh, you could tell it was temporary because there were two different temples. There was a time when the, when the, the sacrificial system took place in a tent and it traveled. Uh, there was a period of time where there weren't sacrifices. And, and so in all these ways, there were all these different things that pointed to the fact that the old covenant 
The old sacrificial system, it was temporary. It was never meant to endure. It always pointed forward to something, right? It always pointed forward to something. It pointed toward this better covenant. And the author brings it up because the hearers uh, in the audience, they were hearing this message either being preached or read, and they were all tempted to go backward into Judaism. And so the author is telling them, don't go backward into this uh, temporary expired system. Go forward into Jesus Christ, into this relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so he's showed them in all these different places, in all these ways, how the covenant that Jesus brought about is greater, it's more effective, and it's more important that you walk in this covenant in Christ than you go backward. And we get that because we're always tempted when times get difficult to go backward into a different, uh, to backslide as it were, into uh, different habits or different uh, ideas or different philosophies. Um, So he wants us to press forward in faith in Christ. Now, a couple of other features about this passage. Uh, If you look at verse 14, uh, look at that with me. It says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to God, how much more will that purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There aren't many phrases where there's a clear Trinitarian. um, uh, it, It says here very clearly that there's Christ, there's the eternal spirit, and there's God. And there's just not many passages in the Bible that have this Trinitarian concept all in one place. Uh, And in this way, we see that the Godhead agrees among himself this covenant of redemption, right? That they are working together as one God and three persons to bring about the salvation of our souls. And it happens through this issue of blood that's brought up a number of times in this passage, verses 11 through 22. It talks about how there is no forgiveness without blood. I don't think about blood very often. I'm not queasy or anything. Uh, I could do you know, the, the different things in science class uh, when, when you're in high school and you had to dissect animals. How many of you just hated that and you would faint? How many of you get squeamish when you think about, uh, uh, Julie's not here, uh, she had to go do something. But, but that's her, she has a hard time. Anytime she has to go to the doctor and they have to take blood, she has to tell them, I have these rolling and collapsing veins. Lindy's probably heard this before. Uh, that it's hard for her. And, and I've watched a dozen times um, people struggle to, to draw blood from Julie because they can't find it. And they'll just kind of dig around in there. And I'll watch her eyes kind of float back because she just can't handle that. And um, uh, I, I don't, it, it's hard for us to think about this um, because we think of, we view blood in a different way than maybe our Creator does. But when you think about this, I want you to think in these terms. I want you to think that uh, blood is life and life is precious. Can you say that with me? Blood is life and life is precious. I want you to think about that. I want you to think about the way the Bible views blood. It views blood as life. It views blood as life. You know, you can, uh, you can survive artificially without a heart if, you're, uh, uh, if, if you have, have a machine and it's it's pumping the blood through your body. You can survive for a time. You can survive with, with limited brain function for a time. But if you nick the right artery, your blood can drain out quickly. Blood is life and life is precious. Blood is life and life is precious. Let me give you a few blood facts so that we can kind of understand this. Blood is a combination of 
plasma and red and white cells that circulate through the entire body. It's a specialized fluid that supplies essential substances around the body, such as oxygen, sugars, and hormones, and it also removes waste from the cells in your body. Did you know that your body produces around 2 million blood cells every second? The expected number of red blood cells in a single drop is 4.5 to 6.2 million in men and 4.0 to 5.2 million in women. That's the number of red blood cells in a single drop. In the time that I've been telling you these random facts about blood, this 60 seconds, it, that's how long it took for a drop of blood to travel, travel from your heart through your body and back to your heart again. Uh, did you know that all blood isn't red? Crabs have blue blood, earthworms and leeches have green blood, and some invertebrates such as starfish have clear or yellowish blood. Right? Now you're, you're smarter. Right? You understand some random fact that, that won't impress anybody. Blood does amazing things, though. It functions in several ways. It supplies oxygen to your cells and tissues. It provides essential nutrients such as amino acids and fatty acids and glucose. It removes waste materials. It protects your body from infection and foreign bodies through the white blood cells. It transports hormones from one part of your body to another, transmitting messages and completing important processes. It regulates acidity levels and body temperature. It protects uh, against disease. White blood cells defend the body against infections, foreign materials, and abnormal cells. The platelets in blood enable clotting or coagulation of blood. And when bleeding occurs, the platelets group together to create a clot. And that clot becomes a scab and stops the bleeding, as well as helping to protect the wound from infection. There are four types of blood, right? Uh, And eight types, I guess, if you count the positives and negatives. There are multiple disorders of your blood. The most common are anemia, uh, which is a shortage of red blood cells. And as a result, they don't transport oxygen effectively, and the symptoms would include fatigue and pale skin. Uh, You can also have blood clots. Uh, Although these are vital for healing processes, some clots can coagulate inside a blood vessel and create a blockage, and they can also become dislodged and move through the heart to the lungs, leading to an embolism. There are also blood cancers as well. But in all these ways, you can't survive without it. You need it. You have to have it because blood is life and life is precious. Blood is life and life is precious. What does this have to do with our text? We have to understand a couple of things about ourselves if we're going to understand why blood matters. You have to understand a couple of things about ourselves. You have to understand this one thing for sure. We think in terms of after the fall, after the fall of man, that we became sinners. The doctrine that we use to describe that is total depravity. Total depravity is the understanding that there's not one part of our lives that isn't saturated with sin. And we understand that because the the high priest, there was all these sacrifices for all the different sins that people would commit. But the high priest still had to, once a year as a catch-all for the nation, sacrifice The sacrificial, the high priest on the Day of Atonement would have to sacrifice for the unknown sins. Because there were all these things that we don't even know. know, We we think about sins of commission, right? You think of sins that you commit, that you willfully do, or that you unwillfully do, but, but sins that you commit. 
You think about sins of omission, that is something that God has called you to do and you don't do that. And then you think of all these unknown sins that you don't even know. It's interesting to see the progression in the lives of saints and apostles. For example, Paul, when he first becomes a believer, when he first meets Jesus on the road, he has this experience and he's, he's experiencing redemption and he's instantly struck by his sinfulness. But he also compares himself as a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He has a, a high view of himself in the early parts of his ministry. But then later, as you go, you read that he considers himself the least of the apostles, though an apostle. But then later in his writings, he considers himself um, the, the least of the saints. And then finally, towards the end of his life, he views himself as the chief of all sinners. Why is it that when you grow in maturity and closeness and intimacy with God, that the further you press into your relationship with God, the closer you get to Him, the holier His experience is with you and the more aware you are of just how much of your life is tainted with sin. You might think of yourself as a good person. You might not even think of yourself as a sinner. You might look at yourself and say, well, I'm not that bad because I'm not blank, right? We always insert the worst human we can think of. And that's the problem with uh, the way in which we think about sin is we always have somebody worse than us to compare ourselves to. And so we think of ourselves in these good terms, but, but that's not how the Bible will compare us. It compares us to the holy standard of a holy God. And in light of that standard, we are totally depraved. There's not a thing that we do that's not in some way stained with an impure motive or an impure heart or an impure desire, maybe even one that we, we don't quite even know yet. Under the right circumstances, you might commit any sin that you think now you wouldn't sin, that you wouldn't commit. Over the past month, I've been reading articles about the Rwandan genocide. And one of the most fascinating things about that genocide that took place in the 90s was that it was neighbors slaughtering neighbors. It were people that you grew up with, people that were on the same streets, people that you went to markets with, people that your kids played with. But though in different tribes and though neighboring and living together, when this genocide arose and it became sanctioned, there became this frenzy. And during this frenzy, uh, there were people killing other people. And they were neighbors killing neighbors. And that was one of the most unusual features about that genocide, is that these were people who knew each other. Under the right circumstances, there are unknown numbers of sins that you might commit. You might not be tempted today to do violence to another person. You might not be tempted to rob today. You might not be tempted to be drunk today. But you put yourself in the right circumstances and under the right conditions, you don't know how you might respond. And that's the idea of total depravity. That we are all sinners from birth. Romans 3 says that there is no one righteous, not even one. Listen, it's not my desire to make you feel bad about yourself. But you have to understand why the good news is good news, right? Because there's bad news first. And the bad news is that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now what does this have to do with blood, and blood is life, and life is precious. What does that have to do with that? Well, sometimes we think in terms of the blood of Christ as abstract. We sang a little while ago about, um, oh, precious is the blood. That washes away my sin. It makes me white as snow. But we can become detached from what it is that makes blood so important. And so, all week long, 
I've been thinking about uh, Randy Gregoire, and I'm going to ask Randy to come up here. Uh, I've been thinking about Randy all week, and, um, and I asked her permission if I could share the story. I think it was back in 2012, I remember, uh, when Charles called me one day and um, uh, just asked me to come pray with him. And I remember going over to his house and um, I remember, there you go, before I bust apart here. Uh, I remember going over to his house and him telling me that his sister was about to had a baby, but uh, that she was hemorrhaging. And, and I began, uh, we just began to pray. I, uh, we, we laid down on his floor, uh, just palms down, face down on the carpet, and together in front of his fireplace there in Sellersville, uh, Bible opened for, must have been an hour, maybe two hours. We just, we just cried out to the Lord with everything we had, uh, praying for Anna. And, and Randy was kind enough to share some of this story with me. T- tell us about that day and, and what happened. Well, Anna went into the hospital on December 30th, 2011, to have her seventh child. And in the morning of December 31st, I got a text from her husband, Brian, pray desperately for Anna. That was the text. So I immediately called some people and asked them to start praying. I didn't know exactly what was happening. And then I found out that while she was in labor, she heard a pop, felt a pop, she said to her husband, something isn't right, and with that she passed out. Had a seizure, passed out. They rushed her into um, the delivery room to have an emergency C-section. And um, the baby lived, was fine. And the doctor uh, sewed her up from the C-section and left. The anesthesiologist began to take the lines out, and at that point she started to hemorrhage. And he said, um, I thought to myself, I, I'm the only one here. I, normally there's several other doctors in the room, and I'm a crier, so I'll cry and I'll talk through it. Gonna, I'll cry with you. Right? <laughs> Charles will cry. We're going to. We're all going to cry with there you. Go, right? There we go. There we go. So he said, um, I he said I, I thought I have to put the lines back in. I have to put the lines back in. And he said, I said, God help me. God help me. And he said, I felt this force go through my body, and everything went back in perfectly. When the, um, the OB came back in, Anna was hemorrhaging. She coded. They had to resuscitate her. And in the process of the next four days, she had five major surgeries um, because blood is life and life is precious. And she bled. She bled. And she bled. So she had to have 23 units of blood. Now, okay, so how many units does a normal human carry? Usually about eight, eight to nine. Okay. Maybe seven to nine, depending, you know, the size of your body. So in the next four days, she had 23 units. So her blood was replaced two and a half times. Her entire volume her of blood. Her entire volume of blood. Now, there were also, uh, as we started to, as you explained this to me, there were all kinds of interesting features happening. Um, not interesting, but all kinds of medical anomalies and uh, you mentioned her, her blood oxygen level. Tell, tell us a little more about that. Uh, at one point, they were constantly doing blood tests on her. And at one point, um, the doctor, fortunately, was in the room. Her uh, hemoglobin level, which is what, uh, it's the oxygen level in the blood that 
feeds the brain and the rest of the organs, uh, was about 4.2. And he said, this isn't right, take this test again. And when it came back a second time, it was 2.9. Well, normally your blood oxygen level, your hemoglobin is 10 to 14. Anything below 6, you die. Okay. And hers was 2.9. So they Which is what he back. said is the lowest he's ever seen. Yes. The um, anesthesiologist said he worked trauma for 25 years. He'd never seen anybody survive under six. Okay. And also, while this was taking place, uh, there was a condition where she didn't, her body didn't know what to do. And this is called DIC. Can you explain right. that to us? Yes. In, um, it has a long name, but the abbreviation is DIC. And it has to do with your the clotting factor in your blood. You have a certain amount of this clotting factor and when your body uses it up, then it goes into shock and it doesn't know what to do. So it clots where it's not supposed to and it bleeds where it's not supposed to. And if you look up DIC um, in, on the internet, it will say in layman's terms, death is coming. Mm. How long did this last, her hemorrhaging and, uh, and the, the five major surgeries that took place during that time? They, uh, they did the five surgeries within four days. So uh, she had the emergency C-section, then she had to have a hysterectomy, then she was bleeding internally, so they had to go in and pack the area where she was bleeding, then they had to go in and take the packing out, and then with the clotting, when the clotting factor started, they had to go in and put a filter in her inferior vena cava, which is where the, the blood clots would have traveled. Blood Blood clots have an ending point, either your lungs or your heart or your brain, so they needed to stop them from moving to that, which they did. And so the way you describe this is that it's a medical miracle mm -hmm. that she Quite survived. Yes. Um, during this period of time, uh, I just know my little bitty part of it, and that is that I know the smell of Charles's carpet <laughs> really well <laughs> in front of this, uh, this fireplace area. Because we were there for a long time. We were just reading scripture and then we would pray and then we would cry out and then we would cry and then we would pray. And then we... But during this time, Kirsten put an a update on her blog, right? Um, what was happening during this time around? People um, started praying. I had called and, um, different people to pray and they called different people to pray and Kirsten wrote in her blog about Anna asking people to pray and in the month of January, all people were praying in all 50 states mm. and 67 countries of the world. We don't even know people at all 50 states. But people were compelled to pray. As I met, as I met uh, you know, my friends afterwards, and I would say to them, thank you for praying. And they would say, I was compelled, absolutely compelled. I would put things on Facebook at midnight, California time, and I would get responses from people on the East Coast, and I would say, why are you up? And they said, I woke up thinking there must be an update about Anna. We um, need to find out how to pray. Wow. Yeah, people prayed. Um, not only she, she technically died how many times during twice. this process? She died twice. Twice during this process. Uh, she... How long did her recovery take? Uh, she was in the hospital for 15 days, which was another miracle. She was in a coma for 10, um, a medically induced coma for 10 days, and then she was in the hospital for 15 days. 
which the doctors were amazed and thought should be a minimum a month, if not longer. And she's, she's doing great today. She's doing great. They told her that um, it would be two to three years before she knew if she had any organ damage because of the lack of oxygen in the blood. And um, it's been seven years, and she doesn't have any organ damage. Or Was this December of 12, right? Of 11. December of 11. Uh, Anna came to our church on Green Street in the summer of 13, 15. maybe. 15. She came about a year and a half, two years later. Yeah, 13, I think. Uh, walked in uh, and spoke and was friendly and was overwhelmed and joyful to speak about the deliverance that God had given her. Brian spoke as well. Um, it was just amazing to see this incredible deliverance um, that God brought this miracle that is her life. Mm-hmm. I'm going to read what you wrote in just a few minutes, but, okay. but everybody, thanks to Randy okay. for, uh, for sharing this. Thank you. Thank you, God. He chose, he chose to save her life. And like you said, it's not his life, and life is Yeah, that's right. That's right. Sometimes we can think about blood, and we can think about blood in the way that I, you know, I spent Six minutes giving you blood facts. But when you think about Anna, and you think about Randy, and you think about Greg, and you think about Charles and his family, and you think about a life, you think about somebody that you love, you think about somebody that you care for, you think in terms differently, and you see that, that life is precious. Life is precious. And then when you understand the fact uh, of the holiness of God, you understand the fact that we can't just go into His presence, that it requires blood. You think about when Adam and Eve sinned. They were hiding. They were naked. And, and God came walking in the garden in Genesis 3. And He said, uh, where are you? And He said, uh, we were naked and we were ashamed. And He said, well, who told you that you were naked? And he, they, they described the fall and, and they described the temptation that they gave into um, and immediately for their shame and their nakedness to be covered, an innocent animal had to be killed. And they had to be covered in the skins of these animals. And all throughout the Bible, there's this arc of something precious has to atone for sins. You understand the word atone. Uh, if you do something wrong, atonement just means making it right. right? If you get a speeding ticket, um, you, you atone for that by paying a fine. Unless it's in Carolina and uh, you have to go to court. Uh, I don't know anything about that, but I know somebody else does. Uh, if you get, other, if you, get a, you know, an accident, you pay for your damages. If there's a theft or if there's some sort of assault, you might do jail time. But, but in some way, you have to atone for your wrongdoing. What we understand scripturally, and the beautiful thing, why we sing about blood and why we sing about Jesus and His death on the cross is this idea of the penal substitutionary atonement. This is just a big word for the understanding of the doctrine that Jesus took our punishment. We did wrong. Thoroughly saturated with wrong. There was nothing we couldn't do that wasn't stained by sin in some way. And so we deserved a punishment for that. And the substitutionary atonement is that Jesus took the punishment that we deserve by spilling His blood. By spilling His blood. Forgiveness 
is extended. So we have all these great hymns like nothing but the blood. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing can for sin atone. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Not of good that I have done. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. This is all my righteousness. Now by this I overcome. Now by this I'll reach my home. All my praise for this I bring. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's why we sing about it. And if you don't understand that blood is life and life is precious, then those lyrics and those things will just go beyond you. That that when God said He loved the world so much that He sent His only Son to die on a cross for us, He gave of His life. Many of you, for a loved one, would go and donate a pint of blood today. Very few of you would go and donate everything in your body for the life of another person. But because of Jesus' great love for us, He did that. Let me close by reading uh, this letter that Randy wrote to her supporters just a few months after that. Very powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Thanks for being vulnerable with us today, uh, Gregoire's. Randy writes, Dear friends, I can't believe it's April and this Sunday we will celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died and was raised to life to reconcile us to the Father. In essence, God said, Arise, and Jesus did. God also said, Anna, arise, and she did. Here is her story, and thus ours. Have you ever thought that your life would go one way and God decided something different? Proverbs 16.9 says, In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Our plans were to fly to Fresno, January 7th, to be with Anna and meet our 18th grandchild, Micah Williams Peterson, William Peterson, and return home on January 19th. God's plans. Learn that our 18th grandchild was born healthy on December 31st by an emergency C-section, but that Anna began hemorrhaging and was in critical condition and desperately in need of prayer for a miracle for her life. Thus began this 10-week journey. On December 31st, the Lord led me to put out the rallying cry for prayer for the life of our daughter. By that evening, hundreds of people were praying. From December 31st to January 3rd, Anna had five life-saving surgeries. Each time, God said, Anna, arise. Because of all the hemorrhaging, she developed a condition called DIC. We've gone into that. One website said in layman's terms it means that death is coming. One doctor said that he resuscitated Anna twice, and the second time she didn't think that Anna would make it, but God said, Anna, arise. Another doctor said he had never had anyone come back from a 2.9 hemoglobin count, but God said, Anna, arise. By this time, because of Facebook, my daughter-in-law's blog, the Jesus Film family, our Campus Crusade family, nurses, doctors, churches all over the... Uh, country all over the U.S. and the world were praying and beseeching God for continued miracles and healing for Anna. She was in a drug and dose coma for 10 days. She was given 23 units of blood. At one point, she had 17 bags of fluid going into her body at once. She swelled to twice her size, but through it all said, Anna, arise. Although she had a seizure, she never had a stroke, a heart attack, nor any organ damage. She went home from the hospital in record time, 15 days, And when the doctors thought she would be there at least a month, maybe two, 
and that that was if she lived. From praying to bringing meals to babysitting to cleaning to yard work to sending encouraging notes and cards and letters and packages, we truly saw the body of Christ at work. Blessing upon blessing, miracle upon miracle. We wanted you to rejoice with us that God said, Anna, arise. (coughs) Happy Easter to all, only because God said, Jesus, arise. You know, when you put this in terms of a life that we know and in terms of a, a life that we love, staring at this picture of Anna and staring at her mother, and I won't even look that way, but <clears throat> and when you start to put this in context of how blood is life and life is precious and that, that when God sent His only Son to die on the cross for you, it's because you're valuable. It's because He deeply loves you. It's because He is crazy about you. He's willing to give His life on the cross as a substitute for your sins. Now, the verse we started with, and I'm going to close, is that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Without the forgiving of sin, there is no promised eternal inheritance. There is no presence of God. There is no future in heaven for you. But thank God for the shedding of of the blood of Jesus Christ. It is by that that we have life. So Father, we can't praise You enough this morning. We can't thank You enough for the gift of life in Jesus Christ. It seems strange to us and to outsiders that we sing about blood and that we sing about Jesus and that we sing about a cross. But when we understand how precious the life of Your Son was to You, And that You freely gave Him to redeem sinners who are totally depraved. We can't help but give You worship and praise and exchange. Give You our life and serve You. We thank You, Lord, for the forgiveness of sins and for the redemption of our souls. And if that's not a reason for us to persist in faith rather than shrink back and backsliding and serve our flesh, serve our sin nature? Would You forgive us that we so spurn the gift of Your Son that we would trade the offer of eternal life and redemption and forgiveness for what amounts to satisfying our fleshly desires for a moment? Would You forgive us for how quickly we are to give in to sin? For what costs You so much, we give in so quickly. Would You forgive us for that? Would You help us to treasure the life of Your Son that was given for us, that we may walk in such a way that is pleasing to You, and that we may persist in faith. Father, we love You so much, and we thank You for Your gift. In Jesus' name, Amen.